spent some time this week uh, trying to look at church attendance in the United States. So I just Googled church attendance statistics and started reading things. And it's really interesting when you do that. One thing you find out is that there's no agreement, as there often isn't when it comes to statistical studies of things. The kind of questions you ask determines the kind of questions that you answer and so forth. But I read through a number of them trying to pick out the ones that seemed the most serious and to take into account the most factors. And I found a couple of things. One is that most people seem to agree that when people are asked, how often do you attend church, or a question like that, they are going to most likely double the number of what they really do. And on one hand, I suppose that's part of the natural human desire to look better than we really are. But on the other hand, I imagine that when someone asks you just straight out when you're not prepared, how many times do you go to church? Because if you regard it to be important, you are just going to estimate that you do it more frequently than you actually do. You're not looking at your calendar or anything like that. But people do double it. And um, in the 2000, the church attendance in the United States was about 20% of the population and today it's about 18% in 2014. But more importantly, the researchers who seem most serious and thoughtful agreed that attendance has been steadily declining for the last 100 years and is going to continue to decline. Every year, in most recent years, in the United States, 4,000 churches close their door for the last time, and 1,000 new churches start. Well, that's like three steps forward and, or backwards and one step forward. You know, it's not, not going to, to get you very far. And, and most people say the church attendance in 2050 will be about half of what it was in 2000. Well, if it was 20% in 2000, it will be 10% in 2050. And what I want you to think about is the fact that from the Bible's perspective, that's a an incredible disaster, a disaster of international proportions for that to happen, even just in our one country in the United States. And the reason is found in this psalm. This is a very simple psalm. It's not a psalm that is a lament. There are many lament psalms where the psalmist is speaking out of his heart about his feelings about God or the circumstances in which he finds himself. It's a hymn of praise. And it's a prayer. It's a prayer that God would do something. And essentially, the whole psalm is oriented around the idea, the very clear point, that the psalmists, well, in this case, the worshipers, because this is meant to be prayed or sung by a large group of people, that the worshipers would ask God to bless them so that he could bless the world. That's what he says in the beginning. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all the nations. In other words, bless us so that all the nations can come to know your saving power. And in the rest, it simply goes on to picture what will it be like when the world, the, the nations, are united under the rule of God. And again, then the, uh, the worshipers exalt in the fact that their faithfulness is going to bring in a time of universal blessing in which the nations will worship God. Now, this psalm, as all psalms, was written under what we call the Old Covenant. 
in our Bibles, there are two parts, and the first part is called the Old Testament. It, it uh, deals with about two-thirds of the material of the Bible. And in the Old Testament, God deals with a, a specific ethnic group of people, and I mentioned this morning, the physical descendants of Abraham. Abraham was a Middle Eastern sheikh. He was uh, an obscure person living in what is now Iran, and God called him to go down to Palestine, where modern Israel is, and uh, to, to uh, go to that land, and he said, I will give you and your descendants this land. But one of the promises was, he says to this childless man who is getting older, he says, in, in your descendants, your offspring, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In other words, I intend to bless the world through you and those who come from you. And so in the Old Testament, we read that happening on some level. Um, they, they worship God, and the Psalms are simply the song book of Israel, of uh, the descendants, physical descendants of Abraham. And when they sing these songs together, particularly this song, when they sing it, they're um, acknowledging that their worship and their relationship with God makes an international difference. Bless us, God, so that all the nations of the earth might know your saving power. Now, we need to ask the question, who is this about? Well, as it was originally sung, obviously, it was about um, Israel. But we really have to ask the question, when that promise was made, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, who is he talking about? Well, first, we know that he's talking about the physical descendants of Abraham. But actually, that's not quite true because there are no promises in the Bible. You might want to underline this and you're thinking there are no promises in the Bible given to the physical descendants of Abraham simply because they're an ethnic group. No promises like that. The promises are all given to the physical descendants of Abraham who walk in his faith who follow in his footsteps, that is, the physical-slash-spiritual descendants of Abraham. Promises were never given to the Jewish people. They were given to the Jewish people when they lived under the covenant that God gave them, as we read in the first parts of our Bible. Now, uh, the promises are given to the physical-slash-spiritual descendants of Abraham who share his faith faith in a God of resurrection, specifically. And in this psalm, what they sing is, uh, in light of that knowledge, we are, they are acknowledging, the, the descendants of Abraham, and we're seeking to follow God. And so they say, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among the nations. In other words, bless us so that we might be a blessing to the world. But the Bible story doesn't end at the end of the Old Testament. There is, uh, in our Bibles at least, as Christians, a New Testament, and that describes the new covenant, the covenant that Jesus established through his death on the cross. And in the new covenant, now those Jews who trust in Jesus, now that he has come, and those non-Jewish people like myself, people from no um, heritage ethnically as a physical descendant of Abraham, Jews and Gentiles are brought together into one body called the church. And so the church is the spiritual descendants of Abraham. That's made clear in the New Testament. All those, it says in Galatians 3, who are of faith, 
are the offspring of Abraham. Every person who is a believer in Jesus is part of the offspring of Abraham because God's intention was that the promises would pass not just to the physical descendants of Abraham when they obeyed him and followed him, but also to those who join themselves to the like faith that Abraham had, the faith in a resurrecting God, and that's what faith in Christ is. So now, under the New Covenant, the church is made up of believing Jews and Gentiles, both of whom come to God on the same basis, that is, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, himself as the fulfillment of promises. And God says, I will bless the world through the descendants of Abraham. In fact, it's made clear in Galatians chapter 3 that that refers to us today. Today. That's why the church, through all the centuries of our existence, sing the Psalms, pray the Psalms. We do that because it's our hymn book as well. Remember what it says? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your hearts to the Lord. We apply it to ourselves because God says, I will bless the world through my people. And so we can pray this psalm. Bless us, Lord, so that all the nations might be brought to a saving knowledge of God. Now let's ask the question, how does God do that? How does he bless the world through the church? Why is what we are doing here today something significant, more significant than, say, a meeting of the Lions Club or uh, a baseball team for youth or something like that? I understand in the eyes of the world we're just another social organization like that, and we do acts of social kindness, and so that's an important thing. But there are many organizations that do that. There are many clubs that people join. But why is the church something different than that? Not put in the same category. Well, there are two things that this psalm tells us about that. Why and how, excuse me, does God bless the world through the church? And the first we would say is that the presence of God's people in the world meeting together in enclaves that we call churches, our presence in the communities of this world is a sign of God's saving power. So don't misunderstand the power of a worshiping, united church in a community. It's God's means of blessing the world. Now, the blessings are clearly stated. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. You may recognize those words if you've read the Bible. At the end of Numbers chapter 6, it tells the priests a blessing with which they are to bless the people of Israel. At the end of each day... They they are to say, uh, God, be gracious to us. May God be gracious and lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, make his face shine upon you. These things in number six, and this is drawing from that, and it's praying the same things. But now the worshipers are praying it, not those who lead their worship under the old covenant. May God be gracious to us. Now, what does that mean? When God is gracious, he draws us to himself. He forgives our sins. That's the chief sign of God's grace in people's lives is the forgiveness of sins. That's what we always meet around is the forgiveness of sins. Now, it's not all we talk about, you understand. We do talk about other things. There are other things that God does in addition to forgiving sins, but the foundation, the basis, the the first thing we always acknowledge when we come into God's presence is that he forgives our sins. And so we gather around the Lord Jesus Christ. We acknowledge that we don't uh, come to God and, and open our hearts to him because we're such good people. 
It's not because of the things that we've done that are righteous. It's because of Jesus and who he is and the acceptance that we find in him. When it says, may God be gracious to us, it's a prayer that as the people of God meet together, we we would experience that in deeper ways. We would experience the forgiveness of God. That coming together wouldn't just be, well, we sing a few songs and we pray and some man stands up and teaches us from the Bible. It would be, we gather together to worship God for his grace. And we would experience that more deeply in lives that are drawn into him in the experience of him. It says, may God be gracious to us and bless us. Now, the word blessing is interesting in the Bible, but essentially it means to enrich. To, to be blessed is to be enriched. And uh, there are a few times in the Bible where it means literally to become rich. For example, one of the first things God says to Abraham in the promises in Genesis chapter 12 is, I will bless you and make your name great. Well, there's no doubt that how that happened in this very obscure man's life is that he became a very wealthy Middle Eastern sheikh, and it all happened by the act of God. Abraham himself willingly gave up the spoils of war at one point. He didn't take anything for himself. He made sure that those who had joined with him from other clans and tribes, that they received their fair share. He took nothing, lest someone says that they enriched me. He didn't live in the centers of power. Abraham didn't live in the places where you would expect someone to live who is going to become a mover and a shaker. He didn't move to New York City or Los Angeles or places like that. He lived in obscurity away from the centers of population, and God multiplied his flocks and herds, it says. And in the end of his life, people acknowledged this is a man of God. Now, it wasn't only because he was enriched, but that was a sign of God's blessing. And it was so evident that it was something only God had done. Abraham hadn't orchestrated it. Other people hadn't given him things. God himself had made Abraham great. That it established him as the head of this family that now has overwhelmed the world. However, to bless someone means to enrich in all kinds of ways. Obviously, the thing that was more important for Abraham was that he became very rich in faith, so rich that as he moved on in life, he was even willing to take his son, his only son, the son of promise, up on a mountain to sacrifice him, even though it was abhorrent to him, even though he knew that God uh, did not desire blood sacrifice of human beings, he was willing to do that, and then he was called and did not have to do it, but it was a demonstration that he believed in a God of resurrection. Even if his son's life was taken, he knew that God could bring him back to life because the promises could only be fulfilled through a physical offspring, as God had promised. Now, when we say, bless us, we mean enrich us. That doesn't only mean physical, though we should acknowledge it doesn't mean, as a church, less than physical. But it means so much more. It means we need to enrich us in every way, make um, uh, fruitful all of the things that we do to God's glory. You know, 20 years ago, our elders uh, together took a trip to Albania, we did it at a time when communism had just fallen. 
I remember getting there the first time, and it happened that two of us had come from Greece on another trip, and we met up with the, we were to meet up with the rest of the elders in Budapest, and then fly into Albania. It was rather difficult to get there at that time. And uh, in Budapest, the others who were coming from the U.S. didn't show up. And uh, we didn't know why, but the time came when we had to get on the plane, and I wasn't certain what to do, but we got on the plane, the two of us, and we went to Albania. Well, I had had to make tremendous arrangements all by letter. Uh, you couldn't really phone call Albania at that point. And uh, I had someone picking us up like with a bus on that day to take us up a three-hour drive to Škoder, Albania. And, and when we got there... The bus was there, but we didn't have all our people. I got up to the city of Škoder, and I found out I, I could make a phone call from one place in the city. It was from uh, the post office, which was about a mile walk, and we walked a mile, this man named Gregor and myself, and we walked to the post office. I, I handed a slip of paper to a woman like in a bank, kind of like a bank teller, and she called the number here at the church, called Claire Holden, my secretary, and, and, and she said, well, you can go in that booth over there and talk. And so there were four booths against the wall, and I picked it up and talked to Claire, and she had heard from the people, and I won't tell the whole story, but we all made it there safely eventually, and we had just an unbelievable week with all these people, like 25 or 30 people, most of them quite young, who had never even seen a Bible until five years before. And uh, we established at that point a sister church relationship with that small fledgling church there, a relationship we still have. And now, almost 20 years later, well, we've taken 17 trips there, 50, over 50 people from the church have gone on various kinds of trips, and we've helped to establish another church in Kosovo uh, through Gregor Menga. And, and all of that is such a sign of God blessing us. What that means is the expense of that original trip, he more than multiplied, as though that was a seed that was planted, he multiplied it in people coming to know Christ. He multiplied it even in the resources that we have received through the years, almost a million dollars, that have passed through our small church to go to ministry in Albania. May God be gracious to us and bless us, verse 2, so that the nations might know your saving power. And then it says, make your face shine upon us. May God be gracious to us and bless us. And make his face to shine upon us. Now that's a, an image, and the image is uh, the idea of a parent showing beaming approval on a child. And the child lives uh, to, to see that, to experience that, to know the favor and the approval of his parent. And I saw this a couple of weeks ago. I have a daughter named Margaret. She lives on the West Coast. She has three children, three little boys. And uh, the, the youngest one is just about to turn two. And he was in the middle of the family room. Uh, Margaret was sitting there, and Laura and I, and we were talking and chatting. And he was, he was putting something together. Now, at age two, he's just figuring out how you put pieces of things together. And it was really hard for him. And we, we were all kind of watching him and chatting. And he's there, you know, his tongue's out. And he's putting... Well, there was one point where he, he was getting it put together, and he, he looked up, and I, I saw it. I saw him look, and he didn't just look straight up. He would have seen me. He looked over to his right, and, and he stopped. And it was probably only two seconds. I mean, it wasn't very long, but it wasn't just a glance. He looked. I watched him look at his mother. And he looked at her long enough that it was like he was, his little computer-like mind, so absorbent, was, was looking at every contour of her face. 
just for two seconds. He was studying it, and he was drawing a conclusion. Is she happy with this or not? Is she pleased with what I'm doing? Uh, after he first thought, I want to find out where my mother is. That's the first thought a child has. But then now that I know where she is, what's she thinking? He, he saw that she was approval, apparently. But what he did is he turned back, and it only took about 10 or 15 more seconds. He put this thing together, and he stood up, and he looked at his mother, and he held it out. You know, he had this big smile on his face. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us. It's the sense of approval that God is pleased with what we are doing. That's a longing that is given to the human heart that we ought to enter into. It's not something that only children have. You know, some of you are adults. Some of you might have parents that have long been gone, but you still find yourself at times wanting their approval. That's not always healthy, but it is so deeply rooted in the human heart. You see, this is not just about a church. Just because we're a church, it doesn't mean we can be a source of blessing. There's all kinds of churches in this world. Remember the descendants of Abraham? The promises are made to physical, spiritual descendants. Physical descendants who live for God and follow in the footsteps of their forefather. And in the same way, it's not just about a church meeting together and having the word church over the door or something like that. It's about a church that seeks and longs to know God and to follow God. It's about uh, the desire to experience the presence and the power of Jesus Christ in our lives and meeting together in small groups and on Sunday mornings like this in order to experience the presence and the power of Jesus in our midst through our worship and obedience. So here's the first thing I want you to know. Our presence in the community is a sign of God's saving power. That's what God says. When churches exist, not just in name, but when they exist with a sense of internal strength, power, unity, a desire to worship and serve God, a full-orbed longing to experience God's grace. God uses that in the lives of people, not only in the communities around, but even the nations of the world, it says. Now imagine a seven-year-old child who um, comes to Creative Arts Camp. We have a thing called Creative Arts Camp. It's sort of like Vacation Bible School on steroids, I would describe it. We've, we've had it for 15 years, and uh, our pastor of student ministries, um, Mary Kay Mizak, is the one who came up with it originally. And, and, and imagine that there's a seven-year-old child who comes to Creative Arts Camp one year. He's brought by a neighbor. He has no other spiritual influences in his life. His parents are completely indifferent to Christianity. They're happy to have the neighbor go, but they have no interest in anything like that themselves. And, and he only comes one year, and he doesn't really remember the details. He doesn't remember um, the, the messages about Jesus Christ exactly. All he remembers is that he had fun, and they talked about God. And they talked about God like you could really know him. That's all he carries with him after that. They talked about God as if you could really know him. And he retains that while he wanders on through life. And he goes off and he does all kinds of different things. And he never has much spiritual interest. But when he goes to college, he, he thinks 
about God a little bit. And he meets some people in his dormitory who know him and who talk about him in personal terms. And they talk about Jesus. And he, he kind of makes fun of them. He, he thinks it's, uh, it's not, there's not anything to that probably. But he remembers this experience he had when he was seven. And, and one day that summer as he's working, he drives by a church and it has a sign out for Vacation Bible School. And, and it just that sign just remi- reminds him, oh yeah, you know, I went to something like that a long time ago over 10 years ago, and, and uh, it really, really made me think about God. I mean, people talked about God like he was something personal. My parents never did that. I never really learned anything about that in school. So he goes back to college, but this time when he goes back, the guys on the dorm floor, they talk to him again about Jesus. They get him involved in a Bible study, and he becomes a Christian. Now imagine again if that church, well, there was no church there the first time. Or there was a church, and no one there wanted to um, do a creative arts camp because it takes too much time and trouble, and it costs too much money, and uh, the kids are kind of messy, and it messes up the building, and, you know, you have to replace the carpet and things like that. Or imagine that the, the people who invited him to go who lived next door, that they thought his parents were too rough and would turn them down or make fun of them, and they didn't want to do that, and so they didn't ask him. And he would have never had that experience. You see, the presence of a church in a community has great power, much greater than we realize. Even if it's just this one-time event that a person has, it can have great powers like a seed that gets planted that goes on. I mean, imagine a woman with a mercy need, and her husband leaves, and she doesn't have any help and has three little children. And uh, at one point, a church in the community steps in with a a mercy fund that helps her to meet this need. They fix her stove or replace her stove or fix up something in her house or pay her rent, and she never goes to church. But her 12-year-old daughter sees what happened, and she remembers that. And when she wants to get married, she goes to that church Because the only thing she knows is that they helped my mother when she was a person in need. But imagine there's no church across the way that that did that. And no one cares enough or is concerned enough to realize that we are called to meet the needs of people and the communities around us. But you see, what I'm describing is what happens when God blesses his people. If his people seek to follow him, and he blesses us, the result is that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among the nations. Our presence in the community, our mere presence in one sense, is a sign of God's saving power. But our presence as a community of people rejoicing in salvation is a sign of the fact that God has ultimate purposes for this whole world. And the second thing we find in the passage is that not only is our presence a sign of God's saving power, but our submission to God is a sign of God's rule. In the second part, the worshipers exult in the fact that someday God will rule the nations. They look forward to that time, and they they acknowledge that it's because of their faithfulness now that that's going to happen then. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. And that's the promise. 
God will someday judge the nations of the earth with equity. He will rule them. And the worshipers, when they sing, they don't only acknowledge or pray, please do this so that the world can be blessed through us. They, they also acknowledge, they envision what will be true when God brings that to pass. Do you know in the prophets in the Old Testament, there are passages that say that Egypt will come to the throne of God as the people of God. Someday, Egypt. There are passages that describe that being true for Libya, for what is now Iraq, for what is now Ethiopia, that the nations of the world will come streaming in. And obviously the, the last book of the Bible describes where uh, John in the Revelation sees a multitude who no one can count from every tribe and language and people and nation who are ransomed by the blood of the Lamb at the throne of God worshiping him. Because what God intended to do first through physical descendants of Abraham, he intends to do ultimately through the spiritual descendants of Abraham, all whom he will call to himself. I mean, that's the whole point of the Great Commission that is given to us as Christians, the, the, the mandate for our existence, for what we're supposed to do. Go and make disciples of all the nations, Jesus said. Now, at the present time, the kingdom of God is found in the church. We are not the final form of the kingdom. We are just like the adherents of the kingdom, the citizens of the kingdom. The church is the place. It's like a community within the communities of this world. It's a community that is giving allegiance to the living God now in anticipation of the time when he will bring that allegiance from all the nations of the world. In the church, in the church we seek to live by the rules of the kingdom now. We seek to submit to the rules of the king, even now. And we find that there are some times when the way in which we're called to live conflict with the way in which the world says that people ought to live, and we find that very uncomfortable. But we do understand that uh, we are on the right side of history, so to speak. History being that long scope of God's purposes in the world. And God's ways and his rules will be vindicated. So now we are willing to suffer and be misunderstood and, rule and uh, ridiculed. But we do that because we look to the time when Jesus rules the nations of the world and they willingly submit to his rule. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. We look forward to that time when on earth God rules in the same way that we seek him to rule among us and over us as the people of God. Now, here's what we learn from that. The relational integrity of a church is of supreme importance. The relational integrity of a church is of supreme importance. That is, the way in which we live out the gospel in relationship with each other is of great importance because it is meant to picture to the nations, the communities around us, whoever comes and watches what we do, it is meant to show the power of God. So if a church is racked by internal dissension, it is not a sign of God's rule. If people complain about each other, to each other, and backbite, and all of those things, it is not a sign of God's rule. Now, we've experienced for 30 years the, the tremendous uh, uh, grace of God and uh, the united way in which we have been able to, 
to serve God. It hasn't been without problems, but you need to pray that that continues because when a church is made up of people who seek to resolve their conflicts in the ways that God requires, that is, they go to other people who offend them rather than talking to everyone else about it. When they refuse to talk about the leadership unkindly, even if they disagree with something. When they don't let people just complain or criticize others, but they say to them what is so difficult to say, when they say something like, you know, I'm not the one you should talk to about that. You really should talk to Sally about what you're saying. I I can help you to do that if you need help, but you, you shouldn't talk to me about it. When those kinds of things go on, there's real power in a church because it is the relational integrity within the church that is meant to be a sign of God's saving power. Again, it's not just a a building with the word church. It doesn't matter how many people are inside. That's not what makes it the power of God. It's the worshiping, united people of God as they meet together and they seek to be God's representation. So the relational integrity is important and the obedience of a church is incredibly important. Because the obedience of a church has eternal consequences as we seek to do those things that will honor God. You know, tonight we're going to commission missionaries. I I, um, want you to know we're doing something tonight of incredible importance. In fact, in one sense, God has been preparing our church for this night, for the last 20 years, since our elders first went to Albania in 1996. I invited all of the elders who went, to me on the, went with me on the first three trips, which are uh, in 1996 and 1997 when we established our sister church. Not all of them are uh, still elders in this church. Some are in other churches and other ministries, and not all are in our area. Not all are able to come tonight, but I invited them all to come, and some of them are coming to be a part of this commissioning. And I just want to tell you, whatever else you were going to do tonight to, to come to this instead, Whatever else it was. It it is so important because what we're doing is we're taking this verse and we're seeking to make application to ourselves. You'll understand more tonight about what it means to be commended missionaries in the way that we're going to do that tonight. Why this Albanian couple whom we've had the knowledge of for 25 years since I first met him in uh, Athens, Greece. Why uh, these are people whom we feel uh, we should assist and unite ourselves to in a formal way in order to carry on their ministry and continue to plant churches. You understand more about that, but I want you to say it will give opportunity for you to experience what it means to be a church. What it means to be a church and to seek to be what God calls us to be as we seek to live for him. God blesses the world through the church. That's his message. God blesses the world through the church. And that's why when churches die, when they're diminished, racked by internal dissension, when people stop going to church, it is a disaster of international size. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we experience... Your presence, not always, but at times when we meet together. We experience your presence and your power as we bring to you our needs and we seek to follow you. When we pray together and we sing together to you, when we take your word and seek to apply it to our lives, we we are putting ourselves in that place where we can seek 
to experience all that you want for us. And we pray that you would help us to do that as a church, not only tonight, but especially tonight. But even as we move forward this year, we celebrate our 30th anniversary in a couple of weeks, and we, we move on into a year of ministry. We pray that you would allow us to be your people. You would let us experience that. We would encourage each other more deeply to remain true to you and to follow you. And we would even draw others, beckon others to join us and rely upon your spirit to move them to do that. And we pray this in Jesus' name.